are you into the self-loathing? Well, not loathing you yourself personally. You're impeccably non-racist and LGBTQ friendly. But let's face it, everyone else is awful, including all your ancestors and your entire civilizational inheritance. Well, if you dig the societal self-loathing, and who doesn't? The National Gallery is the place for you. They're currently working with the University College London Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project to figure out who among their artists and subjects and donors are, quote, related to slavery. And they've just added some pretty big names to the list, including Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria, Gainsborough, and Wordsworth. Wordsworth, you may vaguely remember as the once widely read poet who, quote, wandered lonely as a cloud. Well, he's not lonely now because he's joined the mass ranks of British slavers, a vast digital cloud comprising more or less every historical figure you've ever heard of until the day before yesterday. Wordsworth is in what The Telegraph calls, quote, the hall of shame, because get this, for two years in his 20s, he and his sister Dorothy lived in a property owned by John Pinney, who had a sugar plantation on Nevis in the uh, British West Indies. Uh, are you one of the many contemporary poets who likes to unwind after a hard day wrestling with the spondees and dactyls by watching Nigel Farage of an evening? Are you entirely sure, therefore, that your landlord isn't possibly a transphobe? Did you make the mistake of using a flat hunting agency and unbeknownst to you, your bedsit is owned by an Islamophobic turf? Good luck explaining that to posterity. Wordsworth wrote a sonnet hymning the victory of the great abolitionist Thomas Clarkson and a fat lot of good it's done him. What's up with Gainsborough? Well, he was one of the greatest portrait painters Britain has ever produced and so he painted portraits of British people. He painted the Byam family who owned a plantation in Antigua. On the other hand, he also painted Ignatius Sancho. Take a, take a look at this. Uh, Ignatius Sancho was born on a slave ship but taken to London where he became a writer and composer and the first black man to vote in a United Kingdom election in 1774. That's the one where Lord North trounced the Whigs. And this is the only picture we have of Ignatius Sancho, the first black man ever to vote in a British election. We wouldn't otherwise know what he looked like. But he's painted by the greatest portraitist of his day. Isn't that a fantastic thing? Doesn't it make you proud to be British? Ah, nuts to that. And to hell with Gainsborough. Let's shove him in the hall of shame with everyone else. Cromwell instructed his own portraitist to paint him warts and all. Today we paint only the warts. This is the narcissism of the moment. We have weighed the entirety of human history against us and found them all wanting. What was uh, William Blake's position on transgender bathrooms? Can we get a research project going on that? I hear a lot since my return to UK telly about balance, balance. So in the interests of balance, let me posit an alternative view of history, that if it were not for the British Empire, slavery would still exist throughout large parts of the world today. It does in pockets, but it's not generally, widely, publicly accepted as a fact of life. And no institution did more to abolish slavery 
than the Royal Navy. God bless them, every one of them. Just throwing that out there. If you disagree, shoot me a line, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Femi Nylander is a founder of the Roads Must Fall project at Oxford University. And Femi, it's great to have you with us. What do you make of this uh, national gallery uh, list of those, quote unquote, connected to slavery? I mean, the first thing I'd say is that what you've just said about the idea that the British Empire did more to abolish slavery throughout the world than any other institution just shows exactly why we need to be looking at these histories, because people really are clueless, absolutely, utterly clueless in this country about what empire was and what slavery was. Um, and they like to use their well, own well, confirmation just, biases. Just, no, no, well, please. just let me well, ask you about that. The, no, the no, point? just, just uh, well, okay, for you finish, but I want to ask you a follow-up on that. You finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. So, um, yeah, if we look at um, Queen Victoria, someone might say, well, why is Queen Victoria being included in this? Because she came into power mm. four years after slavery was formally abolished, never mind, by the way, that the slave owners were paid compensation rather than the slaves. Mm. So slavery mm. was abolished after the UK ran it and was the biggest slave trader in the world. Um, and then Queen Victoria came into place. And so she then said, cool, slavery is abolished. Let's go and colonize the entire world instead um, and start an empire from India to Africa, which really killed a lot of people, tortured a lot of people, um, led things like the Bengal famine, where four million people died of hunger in India because food uh, was exported. Uh, um, and the Mau Mau um, people who were fighting for their freedom in Kenya were were tortured and the, the files were actually burned by the UK government. So the history continued, really. But cool, we can we can say, but Queen Victoria, okay, yeah, but, the but, monarchy but, was uh, built on slavery. The Queen, no, no, even no, Queen, no. the Queen today, Femi, Femi, still has a monarch- huge jewel in her crown, Femi. which comes from that era. But yeah, nothing to the do monarchy. With that but let me ask you. Let me ask you this then. You've said that the British Empire did not abolish slavery worldwide. Who do you think did abolish it worldwide? Uh, so it wasn't the Turks. The they didn't abolish slavery till the 1920s. The Saudis no, the didn't abolish people. slavery till the 1960s. Well, the Saudis are still the British's best friend, even though they're still beheading and um, and um, crucifying people. So that's one example of British. Yeah, I agree with you there. We still have a great relationship. Yeah. With no, the no, Saudis. no. But you're, you're right. You're right there. We should cut the Saudis loose. Nonetheless, um, yeah. So the first people, the first country ever to get rid of slavery was Haiti. And how did Haiti do it? They had a revolution where they killed their slave masters mm-hmm. and put their heads on spikes. And after mm-hmm. that, after yeah. and there's actually a lot of people yeah. who say that slavery in Britain was actually. Um, cancelled because it was becoming economically inviolable rather than it was cancelled. Because well, then, and we love ask, to say d- we're the first people to abolish slavery. If I am killing and murdering and raping around in the world, or, or even as a, on a personal level, if I'm a serial killer and I say I was the first serial killer to stop serial killing, is that really something for me to boast about? Well, Haiti isn't anything to boast about. As you pointed out, they killed all the slave, uh, their so-called white enslavers, and they've had two centuries of violence and dictatorships culminating in the murder of their own president just uh, a few weeks ago and the stampede across the southern border of the United States by Haitian quote-unquote refugees who can't wait to get away from Haiti. Haiti. Any if Haitian need, would rather need, be living in a, the British West Indies. You know that. They'd yeah, rather but be if, living you knew, in if you knew about Haitian history, you would know in, that the dictators in Haiti were supported 
by the West, was supported by the US. The front, actually, after mm. um, it, 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 it gave Haiti its freedom, well, not gave, but after its freedom was run, continued to demand colonial taxes from it, which shattered its economy for decades and decades and decades. It had horrible structural adjustment loans put on it by the IMF and the World Bank, which basically crippled its economy. So yeah. Haiti has been a victim still and, and, of and, international and, sanctions and and and, and, ver- and the Bahamas and and the Bahamas and Barbados and St Lucia, none of those those ones that stayed within the evil British Empire have all had a much better uh, two centuries than the example of Haiti. If Haiti is the best example you have of the Haiti people was never who in the British Empire. Haiti was part of France. No, I know. Haiti, Haiti is not, but Haiti as an example is not an example most Haitians even want to consider. They can't wait to get the hell out of Haiti. I mean, that is no, not I mean, a, Like that, I say, if, if you knew anything about Haiti, Haiti, you'd know that the, 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 the fact that they managed to... So you're saying that Haiti is not a good thing. It's not a good thing that Haiti managed to, 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 to overthrow the people who were enslaving and murdering them on a mass scale. You're saying that's a bad thing, that people should just well, sit down and accept being enslaved until the... French no, or I'm, the not, British I'm not saying very, very nicely. I'm, say we're finally going to give you your freedom. Don't take your freedom if someone is enslaving you or murdering you. Wait till the British or the French or or, or, or the Portuguese decide. Oh well, now we're going to give it to you, and then we're going to spend the next four hundred years saying we shouldn't be told off for our history of running a human trafficking and enslavement scheme on a mass global scale. We should be praised because we were the first ones to abolish it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We're not arguing anyone is perfect, Femi. But we are saying that in the scales of history, abolishing something that was accepted as perfectly normal, as normal on every continent, it predates the Code of Hammurabi, the oldest legal code in Mesopotamia. It predates the etymology of the word Slavs from the Slav slaves who were brought to the Roman Empire. It is as old as human history and the British got rid of it, Femi. The British did it on but a I thank bigger you for scale coming on. than anyone else in human history. The British did it on a bigger scale than uh, anyone else in human history. They transported not, uh, hundreds of thousands, well, I thank millions you. of I thank you for. I thank you. I thank you for coming on and, uh, and uh, talking to us. Uh, the former, I, I appreciate it, Femi, the former members of the Warsaw Pact, are about the last places in the Western world with a conventional view of national sovereignty. They think that Poland is a nation of Poles and Hungary is for Hungarians, etc. That principle is being sorely tested by a showdown on the EU's eastern frontier with Belarus, where the local strongman is fast-tracking thousands of quote-unquote refugees to the Polish border fence, surrounding them with Belarusian troops so they can't go back, and telling Brussels, yeah, what you going to do about it? Mark White, the GB News home and security editor, is... Oh, he's not with us. OK, we'll, uh, we'll put Mark on hold. Let's bring in Dr. Domitila Sagramoso, a senior... I can't hear suddenly. Good of you to join us. Can you hear us now? Can you hear us? Sorry about that. Oh, now it's gone. Uh, Oh, it's gone again. What's uh, what do you make of what's happening on the Polish Belarusian border, doctor?
No, I think we're they've, still... been, they've been manipulated by uh, the Lukashenko regime, who's promising them uh, the opportunity to enter into the European Union through Poland, and then uh, their desire, uh, as we know, is to go to Germany. And they're really pawns in this uh, sort of struggle that uh, the Belarusian um, dictator is now trying to sort of fight with the European Union as a result of the sanctions that were imposed on him and his regime uh, due to the brutality of of the way in which he suppressed uh, the opposition and, and, and stayed in power. So I think the situation is very dire and it's very sad, but it's clear that um, uh, the Polish government is responding uh, quite uh, strongly. Uh, I think it will be quite effective, this mechanism of uh, sort of um, uh, making sure that there is no massive penetration. Uh, I think that um, there is a lot of support also from neighboring countries in the European Union, such as Lithuania and the rest of the Baltic states, and also very strong support from Brussels, from the European Union. Uh, this is something that Lukashenko's uh, doing. I heard today uh, a young Iraqi fellow. I mean, these are the same kind of migrants you see on the Mediterranean shore and arriving uh, on England's southern coast. The difference is they've paid uh, Lukashenko and his regime uh, 5,000 US dollars to get these Belarusian uh, visas on the understanding that you'll then be fast-tracked through Poland and into the heart of the European Union. So what we're seeing here is quite interesting because basically this is the first nation-state that has figured out a way to monetize the great migrations of the 21st century. Uh Yes, I mean it, there is there is a way of making money, but I think that the, the main objective is to is to put pressure on the European Union, and in that respect, Belarus is following on the steps of the Turkish uh, leadership uh, under Erdogan, uh, who was uh, the one who really opened up and pushed for the very famous now migration crisis of 2015. So really trying to uh, sort of blackmail the European Union and European countries uh, by putting pressure uh, on, on the migrant flows. Uh, we, of course, we know that uh, many, um, uh, there, there are many sort of uh, illegal mechanisms uh, across the Mediterranean, for example, from Libya, there are many criminal um, uh, bands mm. or groups who are trying to uh, sort of make money out of it. And we can't exclude that local actors are also uh, in the take. So uh, what is really extraordinary about this uh, whole operation is, in a way, it's sophistication. Um, in many cases, uh, the, if we look at Turkey, the refugees were already there. Uh, they were put on buses and pushed uh, across the border into Greece. Uh, in the case, for yeah. example, if we look at the Mediterranean, many of these you know, migrants are put on, on, on boats to cross uh, the border. And there is certainly a sort of a, a criminal ring there. But here we have a really a massive scale. And, and there was a very good reporting carried out uh, by, I think it was the BBC, where it went into a lot of detail on, on how this, uh, these sort of um, mechanisms work of trying to bring people from uh, from uh, Iraq into Belarus and, you know, exploiting people's uh, despair and weaknesses and hopes that they're going to live uh, in a different country from where they are uh, at the moment. Well, thank, thank you for that, Domitilo. It's good of you to join us. I believe we can now go back to uh, Mark White, who is with us. Mark, you've been following this situation 
closely. Uh, do you think, uh, I take it the, the objective is to, from the dictator's point of view, is to get, say, Polish or EU forces eventually to fire on, on somebody as they're trying to storm the border fence, and so there will be dead migrants and the EU can be blamed for it. Is, is that his end game here? I think if, if you speak to the Polish government, certainly in the European Union, they believe absolutely that is exactly what uh, Lukashenko is up to. He wants to cause as much uh, grief and uh, destabilize these European Union states bordering Belarus as possible. And to a degree, he's, of course, succeeding because there are now, we're told, 17,500 soldiers, border guards and police officers on the Polish-Belarus border, dealing with what is a growing humanitarian crisis, uh, let alone the political crisis, because every day that passes, more migrants are heading towards that area. They're being ushered in by the Belarus forces, the Belarus forces. Uh, however, they're not being allowed back out. And of course, Poland is not, at this stage, letting it beyond its borders. And it's determined whatever the European Union might say about uh, hoping that Frontex, the European Union border agency, mm. uh, can work with them to set up a proper system. The Poles don't want to do that, Mark, because the last thing they want is to yeah. be landed with a situation like we've seen in the Greek islands, where you have these uh, camps, these processing centers that mm. have just become uh, de facto detention camps where people are held for months, years at a time. And of course, the same happened in Turkey. And they're still there in Turkey. Well, this is basically, as you pointed out, just a one-way expressway to the Polish border. Once you reach the Polish border, uh, the Belarusian forces are not allowing you to go back if you don't get in. So uh, Lukashenko has made a calculation that in this showdown, it's going to be the Poles and the EU that will cave. Is he right on that? Well, it's certainly possible. And I think Russia has made that calculation as well. Um, the Russian foreign minister uh, has said today that he uh, was well, put forward the possibility of some kind of compensatory payment to Belarus to allow these migrants to come back into that country and to be processed or returned to their own country from there. Mm. And that might seem absurd that you could blackmail the European Union like this. But that's exactly what happened with Turkey and President Erdogan in 2015, when uh, as the camps were growing larger and larger and he felt that no one was helping him deal with a growing migrant crisis in his country, he opened the borders and effectively allowed this caravan through to the European Union. What did the EU do? Well, it gave him £5 billion to be able to manage yeah. those migrant camps better. And so... You know, uh, clearly Lukashenko has been looking at the Turkey model uh, as a potential way forward, as well as monetizing, effectively becoming a, a state-run people trafficker. Uh, he's also looking at uh, the potential for compensation from the European Union to solve this problem that he's created.
That's uh, that's very true, and that could get pretty expensive if uh, every country wants a piece of the uh, Turkish action on that from Brussels. Uh, great of you to join us, Mark. Thank you. Uh, your reactions to our top stories, plus jihadist psychology students and the property maestro, Martin Roberts, all straight ahead on tonight's Farage. Welcome back to Farage. Let's hear what you have uh, to say about the show so far. Niall Gardner, I, uh, I think he, uh, Niall Gardner, I used to know him way back when in the Thatcherite days. Um, Niall Gardner said, uh, well said, Mark Stein, the British Empire was a great force for good in the face of evil. We should celebrate it. Andrew says, people seem to be set on destroying our history. And that's connected with what Niall was saying too, Andrew, because the reason people do that, the reason why they blow up the Buddhist statues in Afghanistan is so there's nothing to go back to. If you destroy the past, you just live in the present. The future is whatever it is, and the, you have disrupted the great uh, stream of history. Martin says the most active European nation in the transatlantic slave trade was Portugal. You're right on that. It was uh, not uh, Britain. And a viewer simply called Viewer. That's not a pseudonym, by the way. You might think he's just hiding his identity. But in fact, he's uh, Arthur uh, J. Viewer of uh, Tunbridge Wells. So uh, Mr. Viewer says, all this talk about slavery in history, how about worrying about slavery now? Yes, I mentioned that the Saudis didn't actually get around to abolishing slavery till the 1960s. That's officially. Uh, we all know these stories that come up where some Saudi big shot has been keeping the housemaid uh, uh, essentially prisoner in the basement. There are parts of the world. In fact, I would say a lot of the, what we've just seen on the Polish border or certainly what we see on the US border where sex slaving, human trafficking is a euphemism for slaving. It's contemporary slaving. People pay you thousands of dollars in order to go to the United States or the Euro European Union or the United Kingdom uh, with Ukrainian, young Ukrainian girls, for example. Uh, sex trafficking into the United Kingdom, that is a form of contemporary slavery and a particularly repulsive one. Uh, if you've got anything else to say about that, uh, we might get to it at the end of the show. GBviews at gbnews.uk. It is time for our What the Farage segment. One of the most interesting conversations I've ever had was a few years back at Guantanamo Bay, where the Americans keep the jihad boys. I was there at the end of Ramadan, and the Yanks had flown in a fantastic pastry chef. The best baklava I've ever tasted. It was, uh, it was absolutely marvelous. But the most philosophically interesting moment came during a conversation with the camp's mental health doctors on, uh, on, on the vexing question on how you tell when a suicide bomber is feeling suicidal. The psychology of terror is endlessly fascinating to the Western mind to the point where we now have de-radicalization programs. There are lots of healthy, well-adjusted chaps out there, and then one day they go on the Internet and become all radicalized. So we have to have special classes to get them to de-radicalize and back to just being interested in normal things like Strictly and Footy instead of beheading priests and motoring through pedestrianized shopping malls. In a paper published today, Professor Ian Aitchison, who led a government review of, quote, extremism, 
in British jails says that significant numbers of jihadists are now opting to study psychology. Quote, while on the surface, this studying could be perceived as a positive step forward, they use what they learn to better manipulate the work of prison therapists. So the jihad crowd are studying psychology in order to ace de-radicalization class. They're already doing a pretty grand job of that. As you may remember, the 2019 London Bridge attack was pulled off by a rehabilitated and de-radicalized fellow given special permission to come up to town to take part in a fifth anniversary de-radicalization workshop run by the Cambridge University Learning Together experts, two of whom he stabbed in the chest and killed. Professor Aitchison joins me now. I was fascinated uh, by this, Professor. Do you, do you think, therefore, that they're getting even more sophisticated, as it were, at gaming the system? Well, good evening, Mark, and thanks for having me on the show. I think it shouldn't be uh, a surprise to anyone that terrorists in particular are students of human psychology. And when you've got terrorists, as we have, over uh, uh, 200 of them, um, incarcerated in uh, our prisons, uh, some of them being sent to prison for exceptionally long sentences when they have all day, every day, to observe the behaviour of the people who are trying to keep them safely in, in custody, uh, they will take an interest in... Uh, to some extent, manipulating behaviour. And as we've seen, and you've referred to uh, the awful events of uh, London Bridge and in, in Streatham, uh, deception has played quite a big role in some of our terrorist offenders who've gone into prison and effectively come out worse than when they went in, but have managed to, uh, to some extent, convince the professionals that are working with them that they have, have changed. And that's what we call um, disguised compliance, which is basically a, a, a fancy name for deception. And, and what we say uh, is that it occurs when, uh, certainly in this country, using the examples that I quoted, but there are examples across the world, really, from uh, France to, to Vienna, where disguised compliance, deception, has led to prisoners uh, having early release, for example, to go on to murder uh, other citizens on the street. But, but we say it's more likely that this uh, disguised compliance is going to be a problem when we have a fractured risk management system, uh, which has got different agencies with different organizational skills and competencies, a, a veritable alphabet soup, if you like, of agencies, uh, right. some of whom have very different ph philosophical outlooks, handing over information to each other, to one another through the journey of the terrorist through uh, custody and into the community. Uh, and we think there's lots of opportunity there for uh, behaviour not to be observed or to not be taken seriously when people are devolving into violence or when they are not being authentic and trying to persuade these professionals that they've changed their, their ways. Uh, and if, if I may, you know, th these professionals, I don't think, frankly, although they're very well-meaning and there's some extremely brave people uh, who, who work in this field, but they haven't got the time or necessarily the expertise or the approach to get to know violent extremists in depth and to uh, often it, it's on collaboration rather than assertive challenge uh, and they use sometimes uh, you know, fairly crude and generic approaches to complex psychology. So it's, it's mm. no wonder really that we do have quite a serious problem, I believe, with deceptive terrorists and well-meaning but naive professionals 
believing uh, you know, completely fictitious accounts of uh, you know a, a, a change in behaviour, when in fact it is done specifically in order to let those terrorists have access to other targets. Yeah, that's a, a vital point, because in a sense, this gets to the heart of the uh, war on terror, so-called. It's not that they have a lot of tanks or a lot of bombers, but they have a psychological mindset uh, that is difficult for the Western mind to penetrate. And it's a little bit, I mean, we all know this situation when somebody blows up something or stabs somebody and the lone wolf turns out to be a known wolf who's been semi-tracked by three different agencies over the years. But in this case, you, you seem to be saying that even when they are subject to, uh, they're within our custody and they're subjected to quite intense scrutiny, we still don't get them. Isn't that a huge failure after 20 years? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a catastrophic systems failure. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why my organization, the Counter Extremism Project, is advocating for a completely fundamental review of how we manage risk. Uh, we need, we think, hmm. uh, for terrorist offenders, for there to be one executive, unified, multidisciplinary authority that follows that offender from conviction through custody and into the community and hopefully into reintegration, which builds up a very rich biographical picture of these offenders and is much more able to be able to discern when they are trying to pull the wool over professionals' eyes in terms of, of uh, their, their authenticity uh, or their commitment to continuing uh, to uh, be violent and, and devise interventions that work around the experience that gathering that information will create. At the minute, we really do have a very Heath Robinson system. And, and you know, this is not just me uh, having an axe to grind here. Uh, the, mm. the, the inquests into uh, the, the, the poor kids who were murdered by Usman Khan and uh, the people who were attacked by Sadesh yeah. Aman, uh, and, and those, the, the inquest is, is uh, transcripts are on a website and they're publicly available. They are jaw-dropping in terms of how much professionals uh, bought the views of a very sophisticated terrorist offender uh, and were subjected, I think, to groupthink and were far too seduced by the idea that, uh, you know, these people, in the words of the council for the families of some of the, uh, the, the murdered young people, uh, the professionals viewed uh, Usman Khan as a poster boy for rehabilitation. And they were well, spending far too much well, time me... being self-congratulatory about that and far too little time actually looking at the intelligence that existed, the thousands oh, well, of me... pages of intelligence that said he was a dangerous offender and he was getting worse in custody. Well, we've all, we've all seen those kinds of reports, Professor. I wonder whether the de-radicalization model isn't itself fundamentally flawed because it assumes that these are just accessories uh, that a person has managed to acquire by going to this particular mosque or that particular website. And in fact, it's pretty clear from these people that actually the so-called radicalization they see as the essence of their identity. So, so looking at it as, in effect, you know, gloves and the gloves and a handbag of a man's personality may not necessarily be the right way to do it. Well, I think we have to be careful here in, in distinguishing different types of, of terrorist offender. So um, the police and the security service, thankfully, but not always, unfortunately, are getting a lot better at scooping up uh, ideologically motivated offenders, uh, principally Islamists, which represent the, the principal 
threat in terms of lethality further and further upstream of, of any attack. That means that you're getting a huge diversity of people in custody from very serious and dangerous, dedicated and committed uh, you know, terrorist offenders who want to kill again and will try to kill again, even in prison custody, as right. we've, we've seen in one of our highest security prisons where a prison officer came within millimeters of being murdered by uh, two extremists who are wearing fake suicide belts. Um, but, but I think uh, what we've what we need to do is make sure that we've we've got a handle uh, on these offenders, that we are uh, focusing uh, on the, the real risk. And the reason I say that is that there are an awful lot of other offenders, uh, some of whom I've described, who are in custody, who are certainly, I think, with the right form of interventions, redeemable, who are not fully committed to um, violent extremism. I, I, you know, in my professional career, I've uh, seen IRA terrorists, extreme right-wing terrorists, and jihadists right. who I genuinely believe have, have changed. But we have got to be clear-eyed about this. There are people in custody at the moment, and there are people who have been released from custody yeah. that we need to pay extreme attention to because their ideological commitment is bulletproof. And I'm afraid um, if we want a society that is safe from those people, we're going to have to grasp the, the, the nettle. And, and you know, ministers in particular, and the government is going to have to be very clear about this, but we might need to have, in certain extreme cases, some form of post-release preventative detention where the criminal justice system cannot stop people like Sudesh Aman, who ludicrously was released from right. a, you know, a high-security prison and was man-marked by armed police officers until he attempted to stab to death yeah. shoppers in Streatham. We, that's intolerable. And we simply well, that, cannot have the ballot that... tipped in favour of those people. No, that's, that's a very interesting point. And you mentioned IRA terrorists. I think we certainly were more clear-eyed about IRA terrorism a couple of generations ago uh, than we are about uh, this uh, threat. Thank you, Professor Aitchison. Don't go anywhere, because up next on Farage is the man of property himself, Martin Roberts. That's next on GB News. No Farage to Barrage tonight, but you can stump the stein, give it your best shot. GB Views at gbnews.uk. Uh, talking pints, I have my pint. We're trying to do it at a bit of a distance uh, tonight, yeah. and I hope no, Martin Roberts certainly has as a convivial tipple. You'll know Martin from his shows on the telly and the radio, Home Rule and Homes Under the Hammer. He's an ex acclaimed expert on property, not just in these islands, but around the world. Uh, but <laughs> he, uh, he also is exploring what we might discreetly call the property of a gentleman, because he's going to be on the next season of Strictly the Real Full Monty. It's great to see Martin. Uh, let me ask you this. For, you've been doing these, these property shows for a while now. What actually was your first property? When did you first become a property owner, Martin? So, hi, and I hope you're enjoying autumn in Vermont. It must be amazing. One of the most beautiful places in the world right now. So, my granny died and, and left some money uh, to me, and I used that as a deposit on my first house, which was a, a three-bedroom semi-detached in Romilly near Stockport. And I just did what my dad had done, which was just do the DIY thing. So, I replaced the kitchen, replaced the, background, uh, replaced the bathroom. At the same time, I was sort of starting my career in the media, earning diddly squat. But at your 
during two years I did at the house and two years on, uh, I came to sell it and it had doubled in value. And suddenly the penny dropped that property can not only be a place that you live, it can actually, if you do it right and uh, do it, you know, professionally, it can be something that can make some money. So in the same time as I earned like £3.50 from the media career, I earned like 25 grand mm. from doing up this house. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, OK. <laughs> Well, I, I take it your granny didn't leave you uh, three quarters of a million quid uh, or whatever the average cost of uh, property is in southern England uh, these days. It was easier, wasn't it, uh, to get your first foot on the property ladder? And do you think it's possible that those, that kind of first start on the property ladder uh, can, can come again? And you say it was easy. Well, you know, I mean, it's all relative, right? My first house was 23,000 quid and my granny left me five grand. So that was a great start in terms of the deposit. But let me take you back to that period. And I was paying a mortgage, OK, which I locked in because I thought it was a good deal at 15%. So I was on a 15% mortgage. Now, people these days, obviously, they're having to pay more to find their properties. But once they manage to do it, you know, we are in these incredible times when mortgages... And interest rates are just ridiculously low. Now, whether that's going to go up over the short period or the medium term, who knows? But at the moment, you know, it makes perfect sense if you can get in. And what I try and encourage people to do is if, if you are struggling to get on the ladder, maybe cast your net a bit further afield. Maybe don't necessarily buy where you'd ideally like to end up, which might be quite an expensive place. Look at other parts of the country where you can still get, you know, a really nice two-bedroom terraced house for 65 grand. Um, buy things that you, right. you can add value to, like I did, OK? So you buy your first house that isn't perfect, but you've got time, you've got energy, you've got enthusiasm, you can, you can do it up like I did up that house that I first bought, and you can gradually start working your way up. So I really try to encourage people to start out thinking there's no hope that I can do this, to think laterally. And also there's ways you can buy property which doesn't cost you anything. Look, you might have some friends who've got money in a building society or a bank earning them diddly squat. You've got time, you've got energy. Why don't you say to them, do it professionally, do it through a solicitor, but I will take the money, we'll buy a house together, I put my effort into doing it up, uh, you get some money back, we'll sell that property, assuming we make, a, uh, you know, make some money on it, and we split the profits. So let's say you do that on a £65,000 house, they put the money in, you do it, you, you do all the energy, you do the work, you sell it for hundred grand. you made thirty-five grand. let us take off something for tax, you made thirty grand between you, you split it 50-50, you've suddenly got £15,000 you started with nothing. So there are ways of doing it, Mark, and I really encourage people not to give up. Well, you, you said uh, that uh, when you doubled the value of your first property that you realised that, you know, owning a house isn't just about having a place to live. And, and Britain certainly is one of, has got a gangbusters housing market. I mean, for the, basically for the cost of a basement in Romford, uh, you could buy entire counties in northern New Hampshire, where uh, I've lived for, for, for many years. It's very different. But there are consequences to expensive property, are there not? For example, if we talk about family formation, it's very hard to have, say, three kids if you're just living in a one-room bedsit because that's all you can afford. So do you think, you know, there are pluses and minuses with a roaring property market? 
you know, and, and, and my heart goes out to everyone who's struggling to try and afford a place to live. Um, but I, I just uh, encourage people to literally think a little bit laterally. I, mean, I, I remember training courses where we teach people mm. literally for how you can get on the housing market, you know, with, with very little money. And so it, 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 it's about just thinking slightly wider than what you, you, you know, you're used to perhaps going down to the estate agent, looking in the window, saying, I'll never be able to afford that. You know, you need to think in, in other ways. And as I said, you, it might be that you can reach further afield from where you'd like to end up uh, and get yourself going on the property market. But it, it's, there's not an easy route to this, OK? It requires time, it requires right. energy, it requires dedication. But if you want to get there, you know, I, I just encourage people not to give up. Well, do you think the COVID may have helped by that? Because you say, you know, think about looking, you, you might dream of uh, living in South Kensington or whatever, but look a little further out. And do you think uh, COVID enabling people to work at home so they don't have to commute? In, in theory, you could be uh, in the Shetland Islands uh, and uh, maybe just take a, a, a cheap flight uh, to town when you have to go and actually see the boss in per person. So do you think that COVID has actually changed the way people calculate these things? Absolutely. You could be in Vermont, for instance. Uh, wouldn't that be lovely? But, um, no, you, you know, it's opened up uh, a whole new raft of, of, of places that you think about buying. You know, that, that thing that was tying you to an expensive property, maybe um, close to the centre of a city or in a city. Uh, suddenly, you know, you can, as you quite rightly say, as long as it's got reasonable broadband, you know, you can actually be further afield. So uh, that's another reason why it enables you to think, uh, you know, slightly in a concentric ring circle and this is one of the principles that, that we teach actually is there's this thing called concentric ring theory where you know you might want to be in the center of that of that ring but actually if you just look at, at, at sort of expanding your 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 ring of, of, of where you might look uh, those often are places that the prices will go up as a result of people not being able to afford right bang in the center so if you took Kensington and Chelsea you know, move back to Richmond and then you move further afield and you keep on going until you find a place that is affordable and, and as you say without the need to coming into the office every day, suddenly maybe, you know, that commuter side of things is, is not a, a factor into your equation. And that is one of the things that has driven, you know, the incredible rise in house prices at a time, let me take you back, Mark, to 2020, when, you know, in March, people, right. clever people, were predicting, you know, we're talking 30, 40, 50% drops in the housing market. And Rishi came along and he said, actually, we'll do the stuff right. holiday because everyone was telling him, oh, it's going to be a complete Armageddon. And what have we seen? We've seen a resilience that nobody could have predicted. And that's partly due to a change of attitude. People saying, you know, you know what, I'd quite like to have a better quality of life. I'd quite like to have more room for the family. I'd quite like to have a space that I can have as an office. Um, you know, I'd, I want a better quality of life. And I think that's a, a combination of practical things and also the shock that we've all been through with COVID. And, and, it's, and it's come out of the woodwork and it's slapped us to say, you know, life can change like that. So why not live your dreams now? And, and that that has driven what we've seen, uh, and most people would agree, to be an incredible rise in house prices over that period. That's a beautiful way to put it, uh, Martin. Live your dreams now, because you don't know what will be uh, coming tomorrow. Cheers! We shall follow you with interest on the full Monty. I uh, don't know uh, whether you're actually going to show the full bungalow with two attached gazebos, but we shall look at the show with great interest. <laughs> Thank you very much, Martin. Pleasure.
time to barrage the farage or stump the stone. Wait a minute, uh, where are we? Uh, have I got the question? Oh, yeah, here we are. Put my beer on them. That's, that's the problem there. Uh, Daniel says, uh, who is your favorite singer? Oh, I don't want to sound all Squaresville. I hardly like any, uh, you know, most of the singers I like have been dead for at least two thirds of a century. And I don't want to pretend I'm hip by by uh, saying I like Ed Sheeran, if he isn't still already washed up by now. Uh, Jack says, should the Western coalition in Afghanistan have provided support for the resistance in the Panjshir Valley after with the withdrawal? This is where America's and the West's so-called allies retreated to. The, the Afghan fiasco on the United States has changed the entire geopolitical uh, calculation. It's not a good thing to betray your allies, uh, and it's not a good thing to do it in the contemptible manner that the government of the United uh, States did. Uh, Mark says, if Rolls-Royce built the small nuclear reactors, does this mean our energy is once again in foreign hands as the Germans own Rolls-Royce? I know that, Mark. Uh, I had an interesting conversation about that with the late Duke of Edinburgh during a dinner at Buckingham Palace. So how's that for a name drop? Nigel's always name dropping Donald Trump. I see his name drop and I drop it right back on him. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had a very interesting dinner conversation with the Duke of Edinburgh who was actually upset at the end of the Britishness of Rolls-Royce. Gary says, why wait until April to vaccinate the NHS? If it matters, then make it immediately. Yeah, there's something slightly uh, silly about all this. If it is true that everything is going to be dangerous if you have unvaccinated persons, then why don't they just postpone everything until the fully vaccinated National Health Service reconvenes in April, if it is that essential. Thank you for all those and for the ones we didn't uh, get to. That'll do it for tonight.